You're listening to the Based on History podcast. All units, Irene. I say again, Irene. And we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time. And we're going to go through him like crap through a goose. You tell him I'm coming. And hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you're here? Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to the Based on History podcast. As always, I'm your host, John Nydick, and this time we have a special guest. My brother, Mark Nydick, is joining us for this episode. You Hello, say, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to be on my first episode. Um, so on this one, we are going to be covering, we'll just call it the First Crusade episode, and we're going to be covering the movie Kingdom of Heaven. So we're going to do a Based on History mini with the events leading up to the events of the movie and kind of giving you just a little bit more perspective and historical knowledge that what is leading up to the events of the movie and the siege of Jerusalem and the kind of medieval politics that's going on in the Holy Land leading up to that time period. And we're going to kind of start with the major players in the region of that area and kind of what's going on And then we'll kind of get into the timeline leading up to the events of the movie. So the reason I brought Mark on is that I love history, as everyone knows. Um, I love all history. I study it. I read it and everything like that. But we all kind of have our different areas of expertise and things of that nature. And my brother's, one of his areas of expertise, expertise is medieval history, classical history as well. But... He has read a ton more books on medieval history than I have, and he I know Kingdom of Heaven is one of his favorite movies, and the very first time I started the podcast, I asked him what episode he wanted to do with me, and he was like, Kingdom of Heaven, and I was like, okay, I was going to do that one earlier, but I'll save it to where we can do it together. So we're finally able to make it work, so now we're doing uh, Kingdom of Heaven. Um, just some references, most of this is going to be taking place in the Eastern Mediterranean around modern-day Israel and modern-day Turkey. And that that kind of area, and it's mainly going to be taking place in the late 1000s through the mid to late 1100s, just to give you kind of some perspective of time and history. Um, so we're not going to be able to cover all of it because that's you know we're going to be covering several hundred years of history through this time period, depending on kind of things we mentioned at the beginning to where it actually ends at the end of this podcast. So we're going to skip some things and hit some highlights and talk about some of the important people and places and things that are going on, just so that you have a better understanding. So without further ado, we'll dive right into it, and we're going to start with kind of the major players in the region before the Crusades kind of start, and the, the major Western player in the region is going to be the Byzantine Empire. So Mark, let's just talk a little bit about the history of them and then kind of, you know, one thing led to another sort of to where they are now when the Crusades kind of start, kind of. Right, right. So 
when Rome split between East and West, the Eastern Roman Empire, which always referred to itself as the Roman Empire, but we've since given it the term the Byzantine Empire. Right. Um, it is sort of the reigning power of Europe um, or even in, in the Eastern Mediterranean. When, when the West is falling and you have barbarian kingdoms forming and, and popping up and leading to sort of the medieval kingdoms that we might recognize, through all that you have the Eastern Roman Empire. And it, it kept control of what we now call the Balkans, yeah. uh, Anatolia, which we call Turkey, and the Levant, which is your Syria, Palestine, Israel, Egypt area. One of the funny things I find about the Byzantine Empire is that like after the fall of the Western Roman Empire and people was like the fall of Rome and that led to the Dark Ages. It's like and it's like this like gap in history almost where everyone was like right, dumb right. and dirty the entire time. Mm -hmm. And it's like everyone just forgets that like the Eastern Roman Empire was there through all of it, yes. doing like technological advances and expanding. Right. Like they reconquer like half of the Western Roman Empire at some points right. in time. They like Italy, nor uh, parts of Spain, all yeah. of North Africa. Yeah, Sicily. I mean, like, yep. like they're there through all of it, and we just kind of conveniently just like forget that this very stable Roman world continued on all the way. in I mean, this is jumping way far, but until the fall of Constantinople right. in, in the 1400s, right. you know, <laughs> from the fall of Rome until the Renaissance started. Yeah. It's, it's through it, all of it. It's, it's definitely one of those sort of forgotten empires. That's great to tap into if you really start digging in that time of and, history. And you hit on it uh, earlier, but they are Roman. They think right. of themselves as Romans. They call their leader, the Caesar. They, they do not view themselves as this, I mean, yes, they are Greek. They have a lot of Greek influences, right, right. but they view themselves as a continuation of the Roman Empire that we all think of when we think of like gladiator and right. stuff like that. They, there's definitely a transition period that around the sometime in the 500s and into the 600s where they they go from kind of that Latin, you know, tinge to they're definitely Greek. They're speaking Greek. Um, they refer to their their leader as the Basilius, which is Greek for king. Although everyone called him the emperor, you know, and so, right, right. but their administration always remained Roman. And in their minds, they were always Roman, even as they became more and more Greek. Even as the Latin West began to shave their faces and grow their hair, the Byzantines kept their hair short and they wore beards. And that <laughs> led to a lot more conflict than you might think. I mean, certain, <laughs> certain Western crusaders, when they took over a, a Byzantine area, they might require everyone to shave their face you know and it was this awkward exchange yeah, nothing but, like a little petty <laughs> right yeah. richard the lionheart he made everyone on cyprus <laughs> shave their beards because that's not how the latins aka the, the english yeah. <laughs> wore yeah. their facial hair and so um so they became very you know very greek but they ruled over this eastern mediterranean area now the first major event we sort of come to that that would trickle down to the crusades is called yeah. the battle of yarmouk and so in 636 a.d you see the this breakout from Arabia of the first major Muslim kingdom called the Rashidun Caliphate. Um, and in 636, they had a, a stunning upset victory over the Byzantines that, you know, on paper they had no business winning, but they crushed this Byzantine army in Syria. And that opened up all of Syria, all of what is now Israel and Palestine and Egypt. That all fell to the Rashidun Caliphate. And it would be ruled from, from then through to the start of the Crusades, which is, you know, a period of four, four and a half centuries. Uh, by the Umayyad Caliphate, the Abbasid Caliphate, and we'll talk about them a little bit later, but when the Crusade arrives, the Fatimid Caliphate. And so 636 is a huge turning point because it sort of ends the first Byzantine Golden Age, where they're the unquestioned dominant, you know, major power in the region to suddenly, goodness gracious, these semi-nomads from the desert are taking half right. our kingdom and we're and, now in trouble. And the Levant had been under Roman control, whether it be old gods or Christian, since like Pompey went down there and right. established uh, the um, 
like county or district right. of Palestine, right? Like, yeah, in the we're talking in the like forties and fifties BC, right? You know, so over six centuries of Roman and even and half of that Christian rule, mm-hmm. and now it's firmly in the in the Muslim hands. Um, and and Jerusalem became so important to the you know we know we kind of know why it's important to the Jews and we know it's important to the Christians. It's the third holiest site in Islam because it's where Muhammad, in their tradition, ascended into heaven and then came back to earth. So that that's why they want it. If you ever wonder, like, why is it so important to them? That's what the Dome of the Rock, that, you know, that that's what that's referencing. That's where Muhammad... That's where he went yeah, into heaven, right, yes. Right. So, yeah, it, it, I mean, it's funny that Jerusalem now, it's Israel, so it's, like, Jewish. Right. Um, but really, it has, in, in the context that we're talking about... The Jews kind of get pushed to the side, and it's really Christian versus right. it versus Muslim right. as far as what's the controlling factions. Right. And for for the Christians, you know, it's where Jesus was crucified, it's where he was buried and rose again. Um, and for the Jews, it's where they've had the Temple of Solomon. Right. So it's the it's the number one most holy site for two religions. It's the number three most holy site for <laughs> a rising religion. So that's where the conflict comes yeah. from. And and as we'll see, Jerusalem's really not a very strategic city. It's kind of an awkward one. Yes, <laughs> it, it really almost hinders military expeditions. It is solely for religious right. authority that you want to own Jer- Jerusalem. Right. Well, it's it, we'll probably touch on it again, but that's why it's a great quote from the movie is when he says, what's it worth? Well, one, one guy says to another, what's this city worth? And he says, nothing. And he pauses and he says, everything. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's a perfect yeah, two to, to, And they're both true. Right. Yeah, yeah. they're both 100% correct. So over the next several, you know, like I said, four and a half centuries, it has Muslim rule over very various different uh, Muslim caliphates. Um the next big area we come into is kind of in the in the early in the first half of the 11th century. So the the 1050s, 1060s, 1070s, the Byzantines are kind of at the at the height of their second golden age. They're on a big up. They've they've reestablished control in the Balkans. They're starting to take back. They've they've reconquered most of Anatolia, which again is Turkey, from these sort of early Arab kingdoms. And but a major event that happens in in this the first half of 10th century is you have the massive migration of Turkish tribes right. off of the Central Asian steppes east of the Caspian Sea. So they're not Kaz- they're no Kazakhstan, longer Persian descent people. Right. They it's, are Turkish descent. Right, and people. it's not Arab. You know, people using light shock cavalry. It's it's these horse archer Turkish tribes, and they just established a whole new power base. And, and they converted to Islam pretty much in mass, and they began to dominate which is Persia Ira- or Iran, Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as they came in, that brings us to the next major event that, and even more so in case, you know, in charge of, or excuse me, and uh, as far as what triggered the crusade, yeah. and that is the Battle of Manzikert. Re- real before we, real quick before we get to the battle, is that the, I've always found it interesting about the Byzantine, Byzantine Empire, is like the, the ability of them to go up and down. Yes. Like there, when you look at the Byzantine history, there is sometimes where they're like covering almost the whole entire Mediterranean. And there's other times it's like almost just Constantinople. Right. And that's not the end. And then it goes back to being big. You know, like they have a massive flux mm-hmm. of when, like good, bad, right. good, bad, second, third golden ages and, and things like that. And it always looks very different in terms of at least their, their military. It's like, okay, we're a Roman style military. We have legionnaires. And it's like, man, that doesn't work anymore. We're a Roman style military. But a little bit more cavalry. It's mm-hmm. like, man, that really doesn't work anymore. You know, so it's like, okay, we're going new age Greek style Byzantine, and then when that fails, you turn to mercenaries. I mean, it's always a different, a different look. It's a credit to them, right? But they, and despite their extreme corruption, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know the term, Byzantine means 
corrupt. Like if, <laughs> if, if someone says, "Man, these politics are really Byzantine," that's not a good thing. And so it doesn't the, mean strong and powerful, right? The, the amount of civil wars. I mean, they once had a civil war over how their art was going to look, and I mean, it doesn't matter what the reason. They're going to find a reason to fight each other, and they still had these huge ups and downs over the years that were extremely impressive. And as we see, and when we come to the Battle of Manzikert, it's on and up. However, think, things didn't go to plan. <laughs> yeah. So when we when we look at the the Battle of Manzikert. Uh, we're talking about the year 1071, so we're really getting close to when the First Crusade actually, actually happens. And when we're talking about we're talking about the Byzantines versus the Seljuk Empire now, and the Byzantines have just kind of reestablished their control over Anatolia, and then this Seljuk Empire or uh, you know army basically is sweeping through the Persian area that we know of, you know Iran and all of that. And establishing their dominance over that area. And so they come into conflict with the Byzantines. And this is kind of in eastern Turkey. So basically on the edges. Right, you're getting into Armenia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, on the, you're on the frontier of the Byzantine Empire at this time. Mm-hmm. And it's not, they're not that unevenly matched. Like the Byzantines are fielding a, I mean, just like with all these ancient battles, the numbers range from like, you know, it's always like fielding 200,000, 500,000, right. you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. But then you look at the low numbers and people are like, oh, they couldn't have fielded an army more than three, 3,500. And you're like, okay, well, that's not right either. Right, right? yeah, nowhere near close. Yeah, so I always try to pick the middle. Like, I always try and pick the middle number when I'm doing the podcast and things like that. So, like, you're looking at Byzantines with, like, a 40,000 roughly man army, and you're looking at the Seljuks with, like, somewhere between thirty and 50,000. So no matter where you are, whether they're outnumbered or not, mm-hmm. it's more or less even. Right. But what the main difference is, is this is the first time that the Byzantines have faced the kind of steppe archers in mass. Right. At, at the very least, since like Parthian times and, and stuff like that. So, so no one in the Byzantine army has faced a large mounted archer army in a long in a yeah. long time. Not on a, at a pitch battle of this scale. Right. I mean, they deal with raids. They deal with that kind of I stuff. I mean, you but... had like the Huns coming in and stuff like that, but that's still been... Right, centuries. Centuries, right. you know, th- things like that. So, th- it starts out bad for the Byzantines from the get-go because half of their mercenary army deserts before the battle even starts. They get, like, into a little skirmish. It doesn't go very well for them, so they're like, all right, we're out of here. Yep. <laughs> the, <laughs> uh, Romanus, who's the emperor of Byzantium at that time, is there at the battle commanding, and he tries, he tries to get them back, but they're, like, too far gone or something like that. And... The horse archers line up in the kind of famous crescent shape that you see at multiple battles and allow the Byzantines to penetrate their center while always giving ground while the flanks basically wrapping around them, pelting them with arrows the entire time. And they they actually seize the Seljuk camp. They take it. But by that time, they're basically completely surrounded and they have to retreat. And the retreat, as we all know, is when the major major casualties happen because you know this order doesn't get uh, relayed to the general the right way and this part is already retreating and this part has to stay and fight to cover the retreat this this part of the army doesn't like the king in the first place <laughs> right that, yeah that played a huge that, role that's a big that. that yeah that that leads when on your rival <laughs> is in command of the reserves you cannot bank on them showing up when no. you need them and no. then panic sits in, and flanks get exposed, and that's yes. that's where you break down. Yep. And the they're, the Byzantine, the main force of the Byzantine army with Romanus, who's the emperor, gets completely surrounded, and 
we'll talk a little bit, just a little bit about the Varangian Guard because they're awesome. So the personal bodyguard of the emperor of the Byzantine Empire is called the Varangian Guard. Do you want to elaborate on them a little bit more? Right. So we, we mentioned the Byzantines at times have transitioned from or away from mercenaries. And in, in one of these transition periods, um, they had made a deal, or essentially a peace treaty, with the Kievan Rus, which were the, essentially Vikings that came down the rivers out of Russia. And for a time in the, during the Viking Age, they were raiding uh, so, you know, a couple hundred years before this, we're raiding Constantinople. And, I mean, they, they raided They're going all, all the way down the Danube. Right, all over the Black Sea. They're going all over the place. So when they made this peace treaty, and I believe there was a marriage alliance involved, um, they signed a, a party of, of Kievan Rus mercenaries. So essentially Viking axemen. That's what they are. They're just Vikings <laughs> with big axes. And they bring them down, and they become the, the royal guard of the emperor. And you might think that's odd, but throughout history you see a lot of rulers that are like, all right, every, I've got so many rivals it's actually safer if I get a ethnically, politically, Di- completely di- diverse, yeah, different, yeah. different force who only owes loyalty well to me because I pay them. That is actually better loyalty than I can get from my own troops, right? And and, and I, I forget the name of the battle, but the first battle they use them, they they, they turn the tide. It. Yeah, they carry it on their own. And so from then on, the Byzantines used Varangian troops as their both as their personal guard, but also their heavy hitters whenever well, they would go to you, go on campaign. You can correct me; I may I may say this wrong, but Varangian is either Greek or Latin for like Viking, right? Right. It's it's like the Greek word for Viking, basically. And so, and by about this time in 1071, uh, it's a combination of these Russian Viking descendants, yeah, the, the, the descendants, right? Of it, yeah. yeah, the the Rus. Uh, or um, Anglo-Saxon Huskarls, which, again, on the other end of the Viking world, yeah. Vikings have raided England for forever because, you know, that's what they do. And so over time, the Anglo-Saxons took on some of the Viking way of fighting. You have these Huskarls. I mean, York was, right. you know, it's it was all a, Viking right. descendants living in England. So you have Anglo-Saxons didn't really fight as knights. Their, their best soldiers would big men with axes again. And so when the Normans... Shield con- wall tactics. Right, yeah. shield walls. When the Normans conquered England, you had this huge number of Anglo-Saxon warriors thinking, okay, well, where do I go now? I, I need work. So by this time, the Varangian Guards, a mixture of Anglo-Saxons who have left England because it's not safe for them anymore, and Cave and Roos are getting paid, and they, you know, Byzantines throw money at everyone. And so that's what you have. And this was the elite of the Byzantine army. Yeah, and a big, like, from what I've read, and I didn't do a ton of reading on it, but from what I've read, like, they hold out for a long time. They do, yeah. And they, they're never going to win, <laughs> but it's preserve the honor, defend the king, right, right. you know, that, that kind of a thing. I mean, and a ton of them get get wiped out because mm-hmm. they stand there, they're surrounded, they can't break out, and they basically are fighting to the death. Now, not all of them die. Some get go. It's it, just like a battle. Everything's not always right. cut and dry, right? Like not everyone dies all the time on right. the battlefield. It's not always Thermopylae and Leonidas. Right. Yeah. People do surrender, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and some people escape. Yeah, right. exactly. There's all sorts of there's all sorts of things like that. Right. But regardless of it, is the Byzantine emperor is captured by the Seljuks. He's eventually let go like three years later or right. something like that, right. and he gets back. And that guy who, who was in charge of his reserves has done a coup in right. Byzantium. He gets his eyes poked out with hot pokers and uh, banished to an island or something like right. that. Right, classic Byzantine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, to get another a wonderful snapshot, the the ruler, um, I, I believe Alf Arslan is the the Seljuk ruler. He captures the Roman emperor and he's like, hey. I don't want to conquer all your land. He offers him a peace treaty. Yeah, he's like, let's make a deal. You pay me and we go. And he was like, yeah, okay. And then they get home. It turns out they the people have seized power, his rivals. They tear up the peace treaty and, you know, throw yeah. it out the window. And, this, and then the Turks are like, okay, well, we will take all your land now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they could have recovered so easily from this battle and said... It create it, it starts the terminal decline of their empire. That, yep. And so, so the but the the main thing as far as the Crusades are concerned with this battle is that now once again 
Muslim forces and Muslim empires, which the you know Christian Western theory sees as a major threat, be- is on their doorstep again. And uh, the next thing I want to talk a little bit about is Spain, and, and you'll understand why when, it, when we get to this, because the Muslims are on the doorstep of Europe again. The Byzantines are going to go to the West for help. And one of the reasons that the Crusades start and get the idea for the Crusades is the Re- Reconquista of Spain and how that turned into a holy war. I mean, what do you want to elaborate a little? I mean, we don't have to dig into... Right. I mean, that's a whole other podcast. Right, yeah, but... You know, you're talking 100 years after the fall where, where Palestine and Israel fell to the Muslims in the east. Um, around that same time, a, a little bit later, but Spain falls to the Muslims in the right. west. Um, and the, the moment they're stopped in the... Real, real, it's, I've been to Gibraltar, and you can see North Africa right. fr- from Gibraltar. I mean, it is a hop, skip, and a jump right. to, for the, you know, the Muslim forces sweeping across North Africa to get basically to Morocco and look across the water and be like, oh, there's more land. Right. I mean, not that they didn't know what Spain was, right. but uh, to be like, yeah, we want that too. Right. And so Muslims take it. They begin to move into France, but the, the Franks throw them back. And it create and, and the, the moment the Franks began pushing back and then Spanish forces began pushing back is the considered the start of the Reconquista. And that lasts literally till the year Christopher Columbus sails. Yes. So yeah. for for the bulk of what we consider the medieval period of knights and, and castles, like well, you know, how come there were never any Spanish on the Crusades? Well, yeah. they basically had a built-in exemption. Their their whole life was a crusade, so right. they did not have to sail to the Holy right. Land. Right. From from El Cid to Christopher Columbus, right, is them is the fighting country. a crusade in right. Spain. <laughs> so that's why that's why you never see any Spaniards go anywhere. Yeah. They, they're they're already doing it there. And the the main purpose of, of talking about this is is that. The Spanish themselves make it a holy war. It's not just, hey, this kingdom has invaded us. It is Christian versus Muslim. Right, right. And it, the Reconquista is more than just reconquering the land of Spain. It is reconquering for God to help preserve Christianity in Spain. Right. And the papacy, so the papacy sees that. And although they never, there's never a... a bull issued or you know a call to arms from the pope or anything like that they see it and they're like okay like we can we can do something with this there's an opportunity for us to assert authority you know uh, papal authority in the holy war realm and that brings us really to the dynamic of western europe at this time and the the western kingdoms and their relationship with the papacy, and I want to talk about um, kind of all of that. What are the players in Western Europe, and what is what are the papal states doing to try and control them, so to speak, and why why the time was ripe for a crusade? Why why these guys saw the crusade as something that they would want to do? Why would these kings who control parts of France and parts of Germany and, and Italy and everything like that want to pick up these armies, travel all the way across the Mediterranean, to attack, you know, a Jerusalem and stuff like that, because it's not just them for, you know, like for God to take Jerusalem back for Jesus, right? Like right. there has to be something else. So let's talk about let's talk about that. What's going on in Europe that it's right for a crusade? Right. So you have uh, a lot of things happening right now. You have a lot of change in Western Europe. You're coming out of you're kind of coming out of that era where what we refer to as the Dark Ages, right? Where, right. Um, <clears throat> which was a little bit more violent of a time compared to the time of the Crusades. Now, now. When you're on crusade, yes, lots of action. I wouldn't call it a non-violent era. But as the crusades, are, the first crusades kicking off at the end of the 1000s, at the end of the 11th century, you're starting to roll into what we call the high middle ages. Yeah, so 
all of this is taking place in the early middle eight right middle right ages, yeah and so you are starting to see these like rules of chivalry right like we don't want uh we don't want knights and nobility dying on the battlefield right uh castles and knights are still starting to become the culture you also have in the catholic church you've got things called the gregorian reforms yeah we have this idea that the catholic church never changed ever well they were trying to clean themselves up they were saying okay we have all these we have this warrior culture and things places like england and france and the holy roman empire are kind of being established as you know, England, France, and Germany, I you know, is roughly what they equate to the idea of it, right? And so the Pope is like, how do we, how do we relieve this pressure? Everyone wants to fight. Well, the other thing is, they're all Christian, right? And yes, and they're all Christian. And at the time, they're all Catholic, right? So it's like we can't, we want to control them, but we don't want Catholics killing Catholics right. all the time. And they they had tried to clamp down on that. I, I think at one point, the church, if you follow the Church's official rules, there was thirty two <laughs> days a year it was legal to fight other Christians. Well, okay, obviously they didn't follow that, but mm-hmm. and so you had this this desire to turn Christianity away from fighting itself. Um, the church itself wanted to clean itself up. Uh, you start seeing like celibacy in, enforced on the clergy yeah. for the first time this in is, centuries. In Western Europe, the it's not black and white, one for one swap, but the the church really as an authority figure is what is what replaced the Western Roman Empire. Right, right. You know, in, at, the, in the, the in the long run, right. And the popes were always looking for ways to assert their authority. And then you, you happen to throw into that that you had a Byzantine emperor who is coming to them asking for help. And you know, we just had what this is so this is we're getting into the ten nineties now, but in ten fifty four is when we have what we call the Great Schism, the East West mm-hmm. right. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox schism. And that wasn't just like they agreed and then one day they split. That that ebbed and flowed. And so this is kind of a period where the East and the West are trying to heal. They just have this schism. They, I mean, they basically hated each other, right? And, and then, fought fought against each other, right? And so they they're like, okay, how do we how do we heal this? And the popes would have had that desire. Now they wanted to see themselves above the Byzantine Empire, right, but they right. still and wanted, vice versa, right? And they still wanted to heal the church, though. And so there was already kind of this perfect collection of of events and, and the culture where it was of just we need to turn this outward. We need somewhere. to find somewhere else to fight, right. essentially. And then here comes the Byzantine saying, hey. We have a place for you to fight. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not against Christians. Yeah. So what we're really getting to now is the Council of Claremont where Pope Urban really calls them to arms. And I want to talk about that just a little bit. Not, I mean, you know, we kind of already, you don't have to hit on it too bad or too big, excuse me. But um, what the initial reasoning for the crusade was, not what it turned into, but what, what it was. Right. So... Council of Claremont is a, is a council of a lot of churchmen and, and laymen that they had in southwestern France uh, in 1095. And this is sort of the moment. So like roughly like 25, 24 years after the Battle of Mezzacourt. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And this is where the envoys from the Emperor Alexis of the Byzantine Empire is where they show up and kind of, if, if you want to pick a moment where there was like a formal request for aid. Right. And it was specifically to help push back the Seljuk Turks in Anatolia and and help recapture Christian lands, but to add them back to the Byzantine Empire. Yeah. It was it was not supposed to launch a centuries long era of Crusader states and, and knights going wild in the in the Levant. It was to help them recover the Byzantine Empire. Reestablish yeah, the Byzantine Empire. And that's where Urban II, who was a disciple of the Gregory who kicked off those Gregorian reforms, who was looking for a way to, to turn Christians away from fighting Christians. That's where he that's put his out aha the, right exactly. That's where it's, it, and he wasn't the first pope that wanted crusades, right, right. but he's the one that got the the great the, the picture perfect chance to be like, hey, let's preach it, and it you know it caught like wildfire. So let's talk a little bit about um, 
we'll, we'll talk about who goes on crusade, but I'm going to jump back over to the east now just real quick to talk about what's going on in Seljuk-controlled territory, what's going on in the Levant, in the, you know, Iran, Iraq, and Egypt that is going to really allow for these crusaders to have success when they don't send that many guys, all, all things considered. Right. It's an, ex- it's an expeditionary force, right? Right, that shouldn't have worked. That should not have worked, right. yeah. So, just like we had this perfect set of, of circumstances in Europe that kicked off the crusade, you have this perfect set of conditions in the Middle East, in the Middle East that sort of made it possible. So, as we mentioned, the Turks in the early you know, 1000s had sort of come in. A lot of the major Muslim players in this area are past their prime. Right. And right. so you had the Abbasid Caliphate, which was the long golden age of, of the Muslim world. Um, I mean, that's like that's like Muhammad's descendants. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have, yeah. The, it was the third Caliphate, but it was um, it wasn't quite the biggest. But it's kind of seen as the high point mm-hmm. of, of their golden age. And at this point, it's a shell of itself. It's basically the city of Baghdad where the caliph lives, who has become very much a pope figure. He's now, instead of a ruler of a vast empire, he's the religious head, and he has to rely on other people for protection. You have um, a thing called the Fatimid Caliphate, which popped up in Egypt, broke away from the Abbasids, and it was the first, it's important because it was the first Shia Muslim kingdom, right. a major one. Which, as we know, uh, <laughs> leads to all sorts of problems. Right. Going. Yeah, we got Orthodox and Catholics that hate exactly. each other. That, that's, Shias and Sunnis that That's exactly what I was going to say. And then the big coming of the Turkish tribe, this particularly the Seljuk Turks, they set up a very, very large empire, called, and sometimes referred to as the Great Seljuk. Um, they converted to Sunni Islam, so they were the official protectors of the Abbasid Caliphate. But after the initial, uh, I don't know if they called him a sultan or a khan, but after the original ruler of the Seljuk Empire... It became kind of this like loose collection of bays and tribal leaders, one of them being the uh, Alp Arslan who won the Battle of Manzikert. I mean, he even broke off and created his own kingdom called well, the he, Seljuk Sultanate of Rum, which yeah. is now what Anatolia has become. Yeah. Well, then he dies and his sons end up fighting each other. One of them outmaneuvers it. And so it's like right. there's a bunch of outmaneuvering because all of these old leaders are all kind of dying off at the same right. time. And then the young are all uh, like quarreling over the, right. you know, the, the right. they would, scraps of the empire. Right, and the Crusaders would run into his son, Killage Arslan. You know, that's who they had to go through. Mm-hmm. But So basically you have all these these old kingdoms that are past their prime and a new kingdom that's not that centralized. So the areas of, of Syria, southern Turkey, Israel, um, they're not very centralized. It's sort of these almost warlord figures. It's these warlord figures ruling over it. And... Uh, Right, so in the area around Syria and Israel, you have these sort of semi-independent warlords. All of them sort of rule an area on behalf of the Seljuks. Right. But it's not very centralized. It's not very. It's very disunified. And so you have an area that's kind of ripe for an invasion where they would have loved to look at the First Crusade as just another Byzantine right. mercenary army. This, and then they realized after that, it's like, man, they're here to stay yeah. and they're here to conquer. I, I look at it as like throughout history, you, you know, you, the, like the philosophical historians who are like, they have like a... The great man theory, right? You know, that would be like Caesar, Napoleon, mm-hmm. stuff like, you know, Churchill, Hitler, whatever. And then you've got like the trends and forces theory. Like, you know, there was a drought and then there was this, you know. Right. This, I feel like this definitely falls into the trends and forces because right. there's not that many great men right now. Right. There's no great conqueror out there no. or, you know, all powerful emperor. I mean, the Byzantine emperor is doing what he can. He's actually pretty talented, but he's, he's, he's working with a, a place that's past its prime. Right. Yeah. He's, well, and you look at some of the great, like, the great people who are going to be associated with the Crusades, they're not there yet. 
They're not born. Right. You know, right. like Richard the Lionheart or even some of the guys who don't grow on Crusade, like like Richard, like Henry II, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Or, you know, Barbosa and you know, uh, or Barbosa. Barbarossa. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about pirates. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The famous pirate. <laughs> yeah, famous pirate leader in the Crusaders. Um, they're not there yet. Right. right. So like this is kind of like a it's kind of a down period for a lot of Right. The men, everywhere. The men we know from this era is because they went on Crusade. Right. And so and so that's kind of the situation in the East. And then for the for the Byzantines, they're uh, like I said, they just had the great the not the at the time it was official, but they just had the Great Schism. Yeah. And then thirty years later, Byzantine lands in the Balkans are invaded by Normans who had conquered southern Italy and hop over and they're like, Oh, the Byzantines are so weak, we'll just snatch their lands too. Yeah. So they've just dealt with a western invasion of their yeah. own empire. And now they're like, Hey, come help also us. we need help. Yeah. So <laughs> so that's what sort of and kicks off. The Normans that. come. Right, yeah, the ones from southern Italy join. Yeah. And they are very nervous about them coming because they, they, I mean, obviously they don't trust them. They just try to conquer them. Yeah, well, that, that's, a, that's a perfect segue into the start of the Crusades. And the first thing I want to talk about in the Crusades, or the actual, actual, I use the air quotes on this one, that happened, is the People's Crusade. Right? It's not, <laughs> it's not the first crusade as we know it as like the king or the princes and the armies and the actual crusaders. It's like tens of thousands of peasants Right. Led by some random dude. Yeah, Peter the Hermit. Peter the Hermit. <laughs> who just like... I, I, it, it baffles my mind that this even happened. Other than that like the serfdom in... Right. It, they like... Poor people don't like being poor. <laughs> you know? And so they, they see this as a way to go and claim land right. and raise their status and stuff like that. But he gets tens of thousands of people to follow him. And they just start... I mean, mainly in Germany... Right, kind of on that where Germany, France, Belgium all come together. Yeah, he's got some Flemish in there and, mm-hmm. and all of that. So, like, he gathers all these French, German, whatever, you know, peasants, mm-hmm. and they just start marching basically through the German states. Right, as a, as a giant mob. As a giant mob. And, well, I mean, we can talk about what they do, but, like, they basically rab. It's one of the reasons why the Germans are late to the party when it comes to the Crusades is that they don't trust Crusaders because of this. The People's Crusade basically march through their land. They raise cities. They kill tons of settlers and people. And right, kill people in Hungary. They kill people in, when they get to Byzantine lands. It's like, oh, Greeks. They don't even count. You know, I yeah. mean, it's just open. <laughs> they don't even count as yeah. they're like also asking the Byzantines to bring them food so they can continue marching. Yeah, yeah. they're also burning their villages. Yeah. You have the first sort of instances of, of major anti-Semitic attacks in Europe. It's called the Rhineland Massacres in 1096, which is Peter the Hermit's crusade. They're all they're all hopped up. You know, yeah. We just started the crusade, but there's only Christians around and a few Jews. So, I mean, who are you going to turn on, right? right. And so, <laughs> especially in Metz, uh, is, is one city where it got really out of hand, but you have the Rhineland Massacres, which is kind of, a lot of historians now see that as like the first step that led to the Holocaust in mm. World War II. Um, the first major attack. Nothing like some Germans taking advantage of the Jews in Germany. To... Yeah, I mean, just <laughs> while they're supposedly on their way to do God's work. Right. And and so that's how Peter's crusade started. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. It starts off great, right? And it just keeps on getting better and better. Right. So, I mean, the... Attacking everyone who's supposed to be helping them. Yeah, well, they, they get to Byzantium, or the Constantinople, really, and the Byzantines are like, get them out of here as quickly yeah. as possible. I don't care what happens to them. I mean, everyone knows it's not going to end well for these right. guys. But they do ferry them across the Bosphorus and put them into Anatolia. Right. And here's this, like, the crazy thing is, like, I'm not, we're not going to get into the battles, really. But they have some initial victories that you're just like, wait, what? Yeah. They take a castle. <laughs> they besiege a castle, a, 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 a small castle, and take it. They, 
they're marching to Nicaea, which is a massive Christian, uh, you know, Byzantine like city. Byzantine city, and they basically break up into mob forms, and they're right. all over the countryside, and they all just get caught off guard in different places and wiped out. Yeah, the Seljuks enslaved basically all of them. All of, I mean, the funny thing is, is that Peter the Hermit went back to Constantinople to beg for more food and supplies. He's not even there. Right. Yeah, he ends up jumping onto the real crusade. Yeah. And makes it all the way. But yeah, all the people he led basically are killed. It, I I mean, could you imagine... I mean, I, it was kind of like the riots that happened, I guess, really, uh, over the past couple of years during COVID. But, like, just this mass, mass group of peasants just marching along, causing havoc, going down, and then yep. they <laughs> just get wiped out and put into slavery. Yeah, it did not... It did not start or end very well for the People's <laughs> Crusade. I mean, that's all we really need to talk about. Then it's yeah. just kind of—it's just kind of funny, that, like why all of the, I can picture like all the kings and princes in France and you know all over. Like, all right, we need this much supplies. We need this many horses. We need—we all right when we get this, or we need boats to get us across this, and we're gonna link up with the Byzantines for naval support. And they're like, Peter the Hermit's leading the People's Crusade. They're just like, what? Like yeah, just walking down the road. Yeah, just yeah, it's, I, I mean, it was definitely one of those like the Lord will provide. You know, yeah. and they just start walking. And I mean, I think he had a few knights in the group. But I think there were like, I think there were fifty knights. I but think. like tens of thousands of just peasants with no support, no plan, just just heading southeast. That's about all they knew. <laughs> so now let's get to the let's get to the real first crusade and who's really doing it? Because and growing up when I was little. The first thing you hear about the Crusades is Richard the Lionheart, mm-hmm. whether that's from like Robin Hood-esque movies. Right, he's always or, coming back home. From he's it. always coming back home from the Crusades. So Richard the Lionheart is always numero uno crusader guy. And so you, I always thought that... Usually in, followed by Robin Hood, also yes. coming back from the Crusades. Yeah, yeah, yes. That's the next yes. guy you'll hear about. Yeah, yeah, the fake... The, <laughs> right, not the, even a real person. Uh, so in my mind when I was young, I always pictured the Crusaders as English. I, yes. I always pictured them as English. It was England versus the Muslim caliphates or whoever whoever it was. But it's really the French. Yes. I mean, like the, the first crusade is almost all French. Right. I mean, we've got let me let me look at it real quick, but um Right. The the Crusaders could have been or they were almost referred to as Franks as much as Crusaders by the Byzantines and Muslims and that dealt yep. with them. They, you know, like, oh, the Franks, the Crusaders, it, it was one and the same. Yep. They never I mean, said, like, oh, there's the Germans over there and the English over right. there. Right, yeah, it's called I mean, all Franks. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got you got guys from Lorraine, Toulouse, Normandy, Flanders, you know, all, all I mean, those are all French. Right. You know, whether, whether they're identifying at that time as French or as Flemish or as right. whatever, they are all French. Even Richard. Richard the Lionheart is more French than English. Oh, uh, And yeah. almost all the men he took with him were from France. Some some from England, but it was his Norman French buddies from England. Right, so, right. his drinking buddies. Right, yeah. So it was always, yeah, most mostly Frankish-based armies, sometimes German, but not as many notable leaders. No, yeah, I was, I was reading that, like, the German, there were German knights that went. Right. But... No contingent like of a prince of Bohemia right. or a the few instances know. where you see it, something really bad happened to them, yeah. <laughs> and, they, and they didn't make it all the way or something. And so usually it was Frankish contingents that made it. So I mean, the the real two leaders, and we'll talk about these two guys later on, is Godfrey and Raymond. They're the two princes of their districts that are really going to not only distinguish themselves as military commanders, but actually have the the money and the political clout to become leaders in the Crusades and as the establishment of kingdoms and such right. things like that. And the respect from the other leaders, because there was no one established leader. Officially, a, the Pope had a representative, but yeah, 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 everyone hated each other. And these are the two guys that it's like, 
Okay, we do all sort of like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they can actually walk the walk, too. So, so I mean, now, basically, First Crusade's underway. And this is, this is another thing that, like, people think, oh, the First Crusade. Don't, don't think of it like the Allies landing at Normandy or even, like, the Allies landing in North Africa and the Allied army, the U.S. and British, moving together in one line, taking strategic things. These guys are all coming from different places in France and in those areas. It wasn't like, hey, guys, on Tuesday at 7 o'clock, we're all going to meet up in Paris, and then we're going to march together. Right. You know, they're they're coming from different areas, and they all take different routes depending on how much money they have and how much supplies they have. Some go by land. Some go by sea. Mm-hmm. And so there are and But they all know is that we are meeting in Constantinople, and then we're going to the Holy Land. Right. Some are coming from southern Italy. Yeah. Most are coming from northern France. Obviously, you're taking different routes if you're doing that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, basically, they get to Constantinople, and the Byzantine Empire, or the Byzantine Emperor is like, hey, guys, uh, don't forget why you're here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but sign this official oath. Yes. That whatever you take, you'll, you're will you giving back to me. You're not yeah. here to create countries. And he basically hold, not, doesn't hold them hostage, but says, like, I'm not going to ferry you across into Anatolia until you sign this. Right. And as much as they didn't like Greek Byzantines, the First Crusade seemed to have a, a little bit better idea that, like, hey, working with them, we will do better yeah. than blowing them off. And, and none of them have naval support. Right. And that's the one thing that the right. Byzantines offer because you're basically going to be going along a coastline. Yes. If you can't get supplies, you can't get siege equipment, you can't get, you know, reinforcements right. Right. in a timely manner unless you have naval support and the only people doing that at around this time are the Byzantines. Right. The Italians haven't really come into the picture right. as much yet. And so they do. They sign the, the, the I, said, I almost called them waivers. <laughs> <laughs> Crusader waiver. Yeah. <laughs> Crusader waiver. They get all the shots. Yeah. And like, Not um, responsible for any harm or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. So they make it over into modern day Turkey, Anatolia at the time. And they're going to start making, so Turkey's, just so, just so you know, like Turkey is extremely mountainous. It is hard to move through central and as you get to eastern Turkey. The the mountain range in there is a extremely rough terrain. There's no water. There's not very much forage for your horses. And so really, when you're dealing with uh, warfare in Turkey, it's going to be on like the northern coast around like the Black Sea area or the Mediterranean coast mm-hmm. where you can actually move troops around and things like that. Right. There's kind of a central plateau, but getting up and over it's not yeah, 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 it's yeah. not easy. Um which is one of the reasons the people's uh, cruise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So you essentially city hop along the coast is right. what you do. And which is exactly what they start doing. And they take city after city after city and they either draw or win pretty much every battle. And one of the things I'd like you to elaborate on is we think of the First Crusade as they go down, they conquer Jerusalem, boom, kingdom of Jerusalem. And they established that. They established three other, well, really four if you include Armenia, really four other crusader states along the coasts before they even get to modern-day Israel. And that is uh, Tripoli, Edessa, Antioch, and then... Ar- Armenia, right. which is not considered a crusader state. Right, but... that was local Armenia. It's a medieval state called Silesian Armenia. Right. I, I, Silesian, I think, I think that's right. Armenia. And it's kind of in like the southeastern corner of Turkey mm-hmm. where it turned south into Syria. Yep. Sort of, yeah, popped up and was a essentially... Like, hey, we're Christian too. Like a de facto, yeah, crusader state. They tended to have a little bit better relations with the Byzantines, but, but yeah. And then the crusaders moved south. They set up the county of Edessa. 
the Principality of Antioch, uh, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and then actually the last one's the County of Tripoli. It's yeah, it's, four, done, it's done later, yeah, right, it's right. These, it's these four uh, little, I guess you could kind of call them petty kingdoms at the time. If Jerusalem would become strong, but the other three were essentially petty kingdoms. They're, they're really co- defended coastal regions, right. is really what they all, even the Kingdom of Jerusalem is. Right. Because they do not, no matter what, even at their highest power, do not have, they're not like Alexander. Right, they, they cannot penetrate into oh, right. yes. into deep Seljuk territory yeah. or you know they whatever. They have these vast logistic trains. Yeah. They don't even really have a great reinforcement plan. No, their plan is like we kind of hope more Europeans come. <laughs> yeah, like surely they're behind us, right? But so they they go and they set up well, these basically city states is what yeah. they are. They all kind of revolve around one or two major cities or castles. And, and it's it's the it's immediately the opposite of what the Byzantines wanted. Yes. They're like, sign an oath that you won't create nations, you'll turn it over to us. And like, yeah, of course, the moment they get over the mountains of Turkey, where they know the Byzantines can't touch them. With an army. Yeah, they're like, okay, let's create nations. And yeah. that's what they do all the way down the coast until they get to well, Jerusalem. I also think it's funny is it's like, <laughs> Jerusalem or bust, right? That's right. basically what it is. And then there's like one guy's like, nah, I'm good here. Right. And, and then some go, of them stop where they when they cut out a place for them. They don't even really keep helping the rest no, of us. No, that's, that's like, what I'm saying. Like they just where I plant my flag. You know, yep. this, is, this is where I'm staying. <laughs> and they do that all the way down the coast, creating these little crusader states. Yes. And then, so by the time they get to Jerusalem, they've got like a third of the army that right. they had. Yeah, much with... of it's not there anymore, and it's diluted and spread out over these big yeah, areas. And they all hate each other. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they win some some fairly major battles, and then they. And then uh, there's like a major break, which is when they help set up Armenia for the Armenians. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of reconsolidate, get some supplies, you know, kind of figure out what they're doing. And then they drive towards Jerusalem. And this is in 1099. What really allows them again, it's kind of luck, which allows them to really besiege Jerusalem, is that, uh, you can correct me, I'm, I'm going to get them mixed up. It's... The uh, Seljuks just reconquered it, or the the Fatimids. The Fatimids just reconquered it yes. from the Seljuks. Fatimid Egypt has it, yeah, which matters because they are not a horse archer based army, right? So they're not looking once once the Crusaders get out of Turkey, their most dangerous enemy is kind of behind them. Really, yeah. once they get out of northern Syria, it's right. kind of behind them. Which is even crazier that they won those battles because it they're is, yes. a mainly they were clearly underestimated by the some right. of the Turkish. They fight leaders. some hard, hard battles against these mounted horse archers. Yes, they have cavalry, but they've got a lot of infantry too. They are not a mounted force right. like the Seljuks are. When well, they marched in separate columns. There, yeah. There's battles they won where one column got attacked, and basically they hunkered down. They're like, man, I hope the other columns find us. Yeah. And they did. I mean, yeah. they, And they won these battles that they maybe shouldn't have won. But a they, lot of the ones they shouldn't have won. But they always pull out these kind of like miraculous. I Which, mean, one time they think they, they dig up the... Yes. The true spear that pierced Christ, and, and everyone's like, oh, no way, let's go fight. And then yeah. they win. And then they win. Yeah, and they shouldn't have won that one either. Yeah, so the Fatimid uh, Caliphate is not a horse archer people. Correct, it's more they, of an Arab-type culture. It's 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 almost a one-for-one army with the Franks. They in, have, in fact, I think it outnumbers the besieging army. The, the defending army of Jerusalem is larger than the one attacking it outside the walls. Well, I just mean the way they fight in battle. Oh, yes. They, yeah, yeah. they have infantry to, for as a basically a stopper wall, and then they've got archers, and then they've got cavalry to mm-hmm. exploit any gaps or flanks and things like that. They're just not, a good at it as, they're not as good at any of it as the Franks are. Right, right. And so when you fight the same way, the bigger, better, stronger man is going to win. And so the Franks demolish yes. the Fatimids pretty much... 
almost every almost every time not every time but almost every time they have no respect for the egyptian muslim armies coming right. coming to fight them. yeah they yeah they would refer to the fadmids as the egyptians and they they beat them so many times even when they're outnumbered that the one or two times you see them lose it's because like ten thousand egyptians would come up and they're like oh we only need like 600 guys yeah oh and well then they lose that one you know but right. then they go back and they're, okay maybe we needed 800 yeah you know, and then and then, then they, they win. wipe the floor yeah with them. so yeah. in their first encounters toward the siege of jerusalem or again the defending army outnumbers the besieging crusaders, and it's still... Which is not supposed to work that way. Right. You, you typically say you want a 3-to-1 <laughs> three three to advantage or three to you one, take right. a defended position. They're, I mean, they're there for roughly a month, besieging besieging Jerusalem. And, I mean, you can almost not even call... It, they, they have no siege equipment. They have no nothing. Yeah, initially they've got nothing. They've got nothing. They don't even have enough troops to surround the city completely. Yeah. There's parts of Jerusalem that are not... There, there's no besieging force outside it. No, I mean they've, they've they've got basically what I think is I might get them. Uh, we've got Godfrey in the north and Raymond in the south. Yeah, I think so. And th- and that's pretty much it. I mean maybe it's reverse. Maybe Godfrey's in the south. You know mm-hmm. whatever. But uh, yeah, it's like everyone take a gate if you can. Yeah, they're there for a month. They're not. They they try another one of these weird things I was reading about. Like someone had a vision because they have no wood. They have zero right. wood. One guy has a vision. They go to a cave and they find a stockpile of wood <laughs> and they build a ladder and like one night tries to like sneak in to open the gate. It fails. But like weird stuff like that happens throughout the crusade. Yeah, especially the first crusade. Yeah. It's just like one lucky break after another, honestly. But they get some, re- they get, like the Italians and the English send some a fleet to reinforce them. They get wood to build siege equipment. Then they actually start sieging the city. And I just don't know how they win. Yeah, I, they get a they get a tower once they bring in wood. Right. They, 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 they got a Byzantine, battering ram. They I think got some, some Byzantine engineers come down. Maybe it, they're Italian, but it says the it said the finest siege equipment in the Middle East yeah. is what is described as the Crusaders having. And they get one tower in place, oh, a siege tower in place, and they're able to take one of the towers built into the wall, sort of camp there overnight in the tower. Yeah, so movies that, make it look like it's this one epic melee, but right. they take that tower, and then the next day, like the general assault is on. Yeah, and well, they just. I know that like they they, they the try city. and do a dual assault, and the the uh, I think it's it's Raymond in the south. He's the one like all the fierce resistance is in the south, and then Godfrey in the north is able to take that tower and establish like a like a stronghold within the walls, mm-hmm. and then basically the next day they break through. Right. And you want to talk about they, what happens? Yeah, and what what probably I'd say the most infamous. One yes. of the like t- you know most infamous moments in all the Crusades is that the Christians that broke into Jerusalem in 1099 massacre every non-Christian in the whole <laughs> holy city. I mean, every single I forget the numbers now, but it's it's you know 90,000 inhabitants. So whatever it was, I mean, even ones that hid in hid in mosques or even the Jewish inhabitants, which right. they should have had no problem with. But uh, and honestly, some Christians. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. So yeah, how do you? Someone could yell, "I'm Christian." They said, "No, you're not." You know, right? And so but he's got a beard. No, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Greedy Greeks that were around probably got caught in the crossfire, and they and so they essentially massacred the population. I mean, they said that the streets Jerusalem. were flowing with blood. Right? Like, yeah, streets that had ankle deep blood is kind of like the accounts that you get, and that's kind of up there. In some of the later crusades, there's a couple massacres of of Acre, and and this is sort of right up there. And it's also it's it's one of the reasons that the crusades take on such an intense sort of. Compared to some of the the fighting you see between Christians in Europe, I mean, there's some serious hatred between the Muslim and Crusader states, and and it's a lot of it in, from the Muslim point of view is like, this is all to get back for what you did in 1099 to Pretty Jerusalem. Much. From from then on, is yeah. like, okay, now the game is on. You're not some annoying mercenaries from the north it's, that are dirtier than us. 
we have got to make it our life's mission to get you out of here. It's like the sack of Rome from the Gauls is the Romans. Right. It's basically like, never again. Right. It was like a psychological scar like, we on will, their culture. Yes. We will we will conquer everybody because, you know what, this doesn't happen again. Right. Right. And, and so from then on, it was like, okay, we've got to... Now you start seeing jihads. You start seeing, like, what do we do to get yeah, Christians like, out? You, you never got that religious fervor feel when the Byzantines are fighting against... Right. The different Muslim states. They were they were two neighboring empires competing. Exactly. Yeah. And as soon as and even up to the siege of Jerusalem, it's we're fighting an invading force. Right. That's pretty much all it was. <laughs> then the siege of Jerusalem happens. Then the massacre of the inhabitants happens. And then that's in my mind. That's when it feels like the Crusades. Right. That's when it's really a religious war and not a, politi- a right. political war. It's, it's a thing that kind of made. Not, not to say that the Crusaders and the Muslim states never negotiated, because there's plenty of negotiations right, they had. Right, right, right. But that's what gave it the feel of, like, okay, there's not really going to... This is not going to end with negotiations. Even if we make them, eventually one of us is going to go. Yeah. It completely go. Not going to be... Not going to kind of go. And both sides accept that. Right. Even, like, you see it from the Crusaders later on, who they... Who had nothing to do with right, the generations later. Generations later, they know they are fighting for their lives because of what happened right. that they had nothing to do with. Right, like if this city falls, it's going to be the same thing in reverse because of what the First Crusade did. Yeah. So the next battle I really want to talk about because, like we kind of said, it's been one lucky break after another. But after the fall of Jerusalem in 1099, that's they own it. Mm-hmm. They, they own basically the, the Levant. They own all of the Anatolian coast. All of, you know, Syria, Lebanon, down into modern-day Israel. Right. And now they have to govern and defend. Now they have to establish the kingdom. Right. It's no longer this big expeditionary force on the go. Uh, yeah, now you've got land you've got to, like... And people you have to take care of. Right, and defend and, and establish. Control. It would have fallen just as quickly as they took it if it wasn't for the Battle of, I mean, Asalon. Would you call it Asalon? Asalon. I think you say the sea, I the Boston Celtics have ruined everything with seas. Now. Yeah, yeah. So, do you, do you, is it a hard sea, soft right. sea? Yeah, I think it's a hard one, but I'm not sure. Either either way, uh, there's a, a Fatima. Or I always say Fatima too. Goodness, my the, pronunciations are terrible. The Fatimid. Fatimid uh, army comes up from Egypt because they're the ones, not the Celtics. Right, they're the that, ones that just lost. They're the ones that just lost Jerusalem. So they send another army up. It's not that big. Because um, I just lost a ton of people in Jerusalem because we just talked about how the force was, was so big in, in the siege. But this is really kind of, it's not that far away from Jerusalem, but it's like southern Israel. Right, right. It would it, be kind of, become kind of that southern frontier point yeah, it, that would not, be fought over. It's not over on the Sinai, but it's, it's like just shy of just that. shy of the Sinai. Yeah. And you got about roughly 20,000 Egyptians versus 10,000 Crusaders. And... It's a, an, I mean, it's kind of another lucky break for the Crusaders, but they do do a good job of reconnaissance. So they, they go out, they know that they get wind that this army is coming. And so they go out to fight them because they know they now have to defend their land because they're already viewing it as their kingdom. And the Crusaders catch them off guard. And they, they, it's one of the, I always kind of think of the Crusaders as like disorganized, mm-hmm. but it's one of the few times where they like they have divisions and guys in control of each division and right. they're like and, a well-led army, well, not, not just a bunch of knights running. Yeah, 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 and so and they catch they catch the Egyptians off guard and they attack them, and the when you read like the Egyptian chroniclers, it's like 
a heroic last stand that lasted all day. When you really look at what happened, the Crusaders basically wipe them out. Yeah. They, I mean, they run them down. They're the vanguard can't even, they're not even mounted. They're like scrambling to get their horses. And when they do, they basically run away. They, they ride down men. They chase them into the sea and they drown. There's, there's accounts. I was reading a couple accounts of like, um, like Egyptians climbing trees to hide and like just crusaders shooting them all out of the trees with bows and stuff like that. They, they, they wipe the floor with them and it's just like, now there's a crusader state. Now right. the king, and ba- here, now there is a kingdom of right. Jerusalem. That established that this was going to be a real kingdom. Yeah. It's going to hang around. It's not just one army got to kick out anymore. Right. It's, it's a, the kingdom of Jerusalem is now here. And so now let's talk a little bit about the establishment of the kingdom of Jerusalem the first king, and then we'll kind of just generally, I mean, because there's, we're, we're talking about, you know, from 1099 to the siege, of, the, the second siege of Jerusalem was in 1187, so we're talking about a big chunk of time. Right, here. it's almost a century of, of kingdom of Jerusalem. Right, so, I mean, that's the other thing, like, the kingdom of Jerusalem, and even after the siege, and we can right, it continued about, on after it, that. It, yeah, over 200 years, or just, just over 200 years, yeah. or just, something like that. So, I think 1291 is the Yeah, 1291 is when Acre falls, right? Right, so you're looking at, a two, and there's even other, like, offshoot states that are essentially i think the island of cyprus is kind of yeah. a continuation yes. so or malta and malta right so you've got 200 straight years of an actual kingdom yep i mean that's not counting the offshoots so and, people are like when you think about history and you're like oh 200 years that's not very long because you always think of like rome and greece and right. the english empire and stuff like that and i mean yes the united states has been around a little bit longer than that now but not that much longer right, right. like they were around a long time yes yeah you people had Multiple generations of families, born, grew up, died yeah. in the kingdom of Jerusalem. So when we look at the establishment of the first king of Jerusalem, we really have the two guys, which we talked about earlier, Godfrey and Raymond, who are in contention for the throne. And Godfrey is the more rich one. He was kind of seen as the better leader. Yeah, and the most senior. Of he's the, the most group. senior. Yep. And they offer him the throne, or the, the crown, essentially, and he denies it. Or is, or is it Raymond? Uh, Ra- Raymond, yeah. yeah. So when we look at the establishment of the first king of of Jerusalem, Raymond is seen as the... So he's the one who did the hard fighting in the south of the siege of Jerusalem, but Godfrey got a lot of the credit because he's the one that broke through. Raymond is kind of... He has he has the most money, so he's the richest, and they kind of see him as the, the leader. And so they offer him the crown first, but Raymond and kind of like the Julius Caesar, like I'll refuse the crown and they'll love me more for re- refusing it, refuses the crown. <laughs> and then they offer it to Godfrey and he's like, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, darn. <laughs> yeah, to- total backfire. Yeah. <laughs> so Raymond like storms off and goes and forms the county of Tripoli. Yeah. And, so. and, um, and Godfrey and his line more or less are the, is the line of kings through the kingdom of Jerusalem. He's not actually king, right? Right. He he refuses to take the title king. He takes. All right. Bear with me on yep, my yep. Latin. <laughs> but <laughs> advocatus sancti sepulcri. But basically, it's like defender of the church of the holy sepulchre was the title yeah, right. he used. He refused to wear a crown because Jesus didn't wear a crown. Right. Stuff, yeah, yeah all, kind of Christian all, all the type thing. Right. 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 And, so he doesn't live very long and dies. And then his it's his brother, right? Yep. His brother becomes king, and he's Baldwin the first. And Baldwin is the name that you regardless of who it is, associate with the kings right. of Jerusalem. Because he Jer- had kids. So most of the, the kings come from the from the brother Baldwin's line. And right. so, that's, so you have like Baldwin's the third and the fourth and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. 
And he, he also was the first ruler of what we mentioned, the, the county of Edessa. He, so he had two of the four Crusader states. Right. As under so I think, I think he technically has to grant the county to somebody else, like his oldest son or something like that, yeah. because of the way politics yeah. you know, work and everything like that. But he was he, the founder of, of the county of Edessa. Yeah. yeah, and he is the first true king of the kingdom of Jerusalem. And this is when, in this time period, because the Muslim world is still not completely unified, right? You got right. Seljuks and Fatimid and all the little warlords. Yeah, not much changed for them over the first several years. Right, and so it really allows the Crusaders to consolidate power, establish actual boundaries of these Crusader kingdoms, all of them. And they take major... They, they go and clean up their lands is what right. they really do. They, they take Acre, they... Uh, what, what are some of the other major? They, they take the actual city of Ascalon. It takes a few tries or something. Well, yeah, that. But they Ascalon happens in like the 1150s right, or whatever. Right. So it's eventually, yeah, it takes a lot of tries, but because there's always fighting around Ascalon, but they do eventually take it. They kind of they push eastward until you sort of get to that Jordan River boundary. You know. Yeah, I mean they they are well beyond the yeah. Jordan River. They, I mean they push south. I mean at one point they they touch the the Red Sea. The Red Sea. You know, I mean they just kind of push outward a little bit yeah. in every every direction from from the Jerusalem center. right right I mean and and when you look at a map of it it's clearly defined areas and even the Muslim caliphates and different you know yep. ruling they I, I don't know if they recognize them but they they are there to stay right they start they start building castles you know, yeah they, they do what Europeans do they build castles on every hill yep <laughs> they, and they, they start issuing land grants to yep. all the lords well first off right after the Battle of Ascalon a ton of them go home. Yes, many, many go home. And so there's a perpetual manpower problem with the Crusaders. They always, from from the end of the first one on, they always know they're the little guy with big neighbors that might, if they ever united, might want to crush them. That yeah. was a very conscious thing that Kinda they like modern day Israel. Yes. <laughs> that, and now also you start seeing the um, the knightly orders begin to pop up. Right. The Knights Hospitaller, I believe, is the first. Oh, the, the Knights Templar pops up. Yeah, so the, so the, the Knights Hospitaller, I think, is the... The first one, yes. but they are, for a while, they are strictly just the hospital. Right, they so defend the hospital. The the, temple, the, hospital. the Templars are the ones that you first see as a, because they're guarding the routes. Right, they yeah, they guard the pilgrims traveling to the Holy Lands. They're official, on, you know, on paper. Right, right. And, and at the beginning, that's what they're doing. Uh, but yeah, you see the establishment of the orders, which you can't not associate with, yes. with the Crusades. Um, and their varying degree of... Influence and right, and they always butt heads with the king because they're they're kind of supposed to answer directly to the pope, right? Which is what they throw in his face anytime they don't want to do something, right? And they're typically seen, especially the Templars, as really aggressive, really elite. Um, because and, it's an organization, you kind of have a good number of Europeans filtering into it, and it, it makes sense. You've got if you have a guy who grew up in France hearing about the the stories of the First Crusade conquering, joins the Templars, goes over there. He's like, so we so we're here to kill, right? Mm-hmm. And you have guys that were born and raised in Hoya, like, look, man, it's more nuanced than that. Right. We're, we're friends with some of our neighbors. Exactly. Other ones we don't want to make mad because they could crush us, you know. And so and also the people living in this area didn't all of a sudden become European. There's, oh right. You know, I mean, like yes, yes, there were like more, was it for lack of a better word, peasant class people that did immigrate down in that area, but. Jewish, Muslim, Christian people right. that are that, you know, lack of a better word, race. They didn't just disappear and all become right. white Yeah, you're Franks. ruling over a, a mixed kingdom. In, yeah, exactly. It's not a, you can't not, just go around and kill the Muslims. Right. No, that's that's your tax base if, if you want to make a, put a cold, you know, look at it. And and that, even that became nuanced because the, the Crusaders 
did not bring particularly sophisticated government practices right. with them compared to the Muslim world at this time. So they were seen as harsh, poor hygiene, mm-hmm. taxes were really high and harsh. Uh, you know, the, about the only thing anyone respected was like, man, when they put on armor and charge, it's really hard to stop them. Right. Uh, aside from that, we're not very impressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, so, like, we'll just kind of hop, skip, and jump through the next, you know, hundred years. Right. <laughs> and and I, one of the things I really want to talk about is the Eblin family. But, like, the Kingdom of Jerusalem goes through a minor civil war, and there's all of the good, like, Western European political corruption and jockeying for power. Yep. You know, you Bunny got heads with the Byzantines. Byzantines. With the Byzantines are always trying to remind them that, like, hey, this is supposed to be ours, guys. Right. And like, uh, refusing power in strategic like times because they are mad at them for not giving them their land and vice versa, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, the, the, let's talk about the Eblin family, and they're like in so in the movie. They are such a minor family kind of... Right. It's, it's like one guy. It's one guy. Yeah. The Eblins, their family came down with the First Crusade. And be, and I can't remember which, if it's Godfrey or Raymond, grants them Eblin as his their holding, whether it's through marriage or I, I can't remember. But they become the Lords of Eblin. That's why that's why his name in the movie is Balian of Eblin. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... And we'll talk more about the movie in the actual episode. But Balian is not a blacksmith from France. He <laughs> an orphaned is, blacksmith. Or an orphan blacksmith from France. <laughs> or, or a bastard blacksmith from France. Right. Uh, he is a, like, royal, royal, not royal, excuse me, God, that's the wrong word. Like he, noble. He is a noble-born yeah. crusader kingdom knight. And his father was one of the kind of minor leaders of the first, or I guess it's really his grandfather, is one of the minor leaders of the First Crusade. And their family is all over the place. Yeah, they're a major family in they the are, of Jerusalem. They are all in the Palti. And in the Civil War, the Eblins are the ones that basically are, they never try and seize the throne, but they are putting people in power that right. they want to be in power. Some of them are referred to as like the kingmaker, depending yes. on how much influence they had. Their their influence in the area would outlast the actual kingdom of Jerusalem because yep. some of like the offshoot kingdoms and stuff, the branches of the Evelyn family remain influential mm-hmm. in those areas, kind of picking and choosing and helping run. You know who who the king would be and helping yep. them run the you know until they became an adult, things like that. Well, I think um, Balian, like the famous Balian, right. his mother or stepmother, I can't remember, is Baldwin the Fourth's actual mother. So, so like actual relation to yeah, the royal family. Yeah, so they have a royal connection. Uh, it's because uh, Baldwin IV's dad is married to an Armenian. So when he takes the throne, hmm. they annul that uh, marriage because she's Armenian, and they make him marry someone else. And Sibylla and Baldwin are from Armenian line, uh, but they're allowed to stay legit. Hmm. And so um, Baldwin's mom gets married off to... Balian's dad, like Balian the Elder. Oh, okay, gotcha. And so they have that connection to the royal throne. And then after the siege of Jerusalem, you see them trying to put Isabella on the Isabella? on the what? Isabella or no? Isabella is Baldwin's sister, uh, other oh, sister. Oh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Um, but yeah, so like the point is, they are a well-established noble family that own lands that are all involved in this politics and and things. And things like that. So now we're kind of getting closer to the time period 
of the movie, and that is well, Baldwin the Fourth's reign. He's the famous king in the movie that we'll talk about, and he. Well, why don't, why don't you just kind of jump into, you know, I mean, I want to talk about his leprosy and stuff like that. We'll just kind of talk about him growing up and becoming king and and and, and all that, and we'll kind of talk talk about that for a yeah, while. Yeah, he's born in eleven sixty one into the king of Jerusalem, kingdom of Jerusalem, when it's at a a relative high point. I don't even mention they had had a civil war, but it's it's. Obviously, when it's kind of the Crusader states are in their prime, right? Uh, at, a, at a young age, he did develop leprosy. It was it's a, kind of at the end of the prime, right? End of their prime, right? And it was a very aggressive leprosy. Um, by the end of his life, which uh, I think he, he lived to be about uh, 24, 20, 25. Yeah, exactly. He died when, at, at twenty four. By the end of his of his life, he was blind. He couldn't use his hands and he couldn't use his feet. I mean, yeah. it was a very very aggressive leprosy. Yeah. Uh, now it didn't hold him back. He's he's perhaps the most capable king that Jerusalem ever had. I mean, yes. if he had lived to an old age, or if other kings had been as active as him, mm-hmm. probably would not have fallen when it fell. Yeah. Do, do you do they know how he got leprosy? Because it's think they know how because leprosy is pretty hard to contract, right? So right. you have to have been exposed to it because there were people around him all the time. Yeah, that I, didn't get leprosy. Right. Yeah. It's not like every advisor he had. You know, like in the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah. Someone mentions they're a leper, and like everyone scatters and washes their hands. Right. Right. Well, obviously that that didn't happen because you had to be around the king. Uh, I'm not sure how he got his leprosy, or if if they know, but um, he. So, but anyways, yeah, he rises up, and at, at a very young age, he gets thrust, and we'll talk about the battle more in a little bit. But he gets right. thrust into some very some pretty serious instances where, in his leprosy, by the age of 16, when you start seeing him on the battlefield, right. when, when, when he becomes so. When he's young, uh, Raymond of Tripoli is his regent because his father dies when he's like five or something like mm-hmm. that, and the, and they don't come into manhood until like fifteen or sixteen years old, and so he co-rules. Yeah, so even at a young age, when he's when he's sixteen years old, and you start seeing him kind of in his big life events on the battlefield, the leprosy has already taken over his battle. He was supposed to have always been in pain, and it never held him back. I mean, he was all, usually cons- you know described as in the thick of the fighting. Right. Even even when he was covered in bruises and yeah, sores yeah, yeah, yeah. and things like that, I, I was reading I was reading about him and he was in the like from a very very young age. His like teachers and advisors were like, "This guy is amazing. Yes. He, he retains all the information. He's fearless. He's also very kind. Yeah, respected uh, by friend and foe alike. Every yeah. across the the you know I mean, area that they lived in. It, it's kind of sad that he had. I mean, obviously it's sad he had leprosy, but like he the think of what he. I mean, the kingdom of Jerusalem doesn't fall. If he doesn't have no, I don't doesn't so. have leprosy. Not not when it fell. Not well, when it did. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, it, he, and he even. I mean, he knew he wasn't going to live long. I mean, he took steps to try and make sure when he was gone, things would be right. Okay. So you you you'll see this in the movie, but they don't explain it very very well. They before he actually becomes king, because you know Raymond is r- ruling as his regent until he becomes 15, 16 years old. Um, they know he is going to die. Right, and he knows he's going to die, and it's very clear from the records that this is not hidden. Everyone knows. Right. And yeah, so they didn't try to cover up the. They didn't try to cover it up, and they begin making. And this is like a, a 16, 17, 18 year old boy who knows he's going to die. And you look at what he does. He is actively trying to figure out who is going to be yes. king or rule after him. That is a massive weight for a. for a high schooler (laughs) to be doing and winning battles against probably the greatest muslim commander general general of all time and 
Yes, and, and like we were excited we got our driver's license. Yeah, <laughs> at that, that age. Woo-hoo! Yeah, <laughs> take the minivan down yeah. to the grocery it's, store. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, the the only thing that could be like compared to it today is if like there was a U.S. president who was sixteen. Right. Right. I mean, we have laws against that, but like, he- hello, like all the hormones that are raging through you and everything like that. Why don't you just like command the free world? Right. Yeah. Like, no, and he, he knew. Yeah, he knew it was coming up. He knew he wanted his nephew to take over. Right. He knew he needed to avoid. His brother-in-law taking power. I mean, so, he took steps for that to right, happen. Right. So he, he tries to marry Sibylla off multiple times because his nephew is from William of Montefort or Montefort or something like that, and he dies. Right. And so his nephew's not Guy's son. Right. And, and the ne- he did have a nephew succeed him, but the nephew died after one year. Right. And so his sister Sibylla, yeah, her her husband Guy, who the one thing he wanted was for Guy to not take power. That's how he came to so, power. But well, Guy. So, um, Guy gets into the mix of everything because of the politicking behind Baldwin's back. You got, like, Raymond, who was his regent, and, honestly, the Eblins right. are, <laughs> are trying to get someone into power, and Baldwin kind of finds out about it. And then, so, it's a quick political move that he does to quickly marry Guy to Sibylla mm. to stop them from, from getting into power right. so that he can solidify his nephew's... Or his nephew to become king. Right. Well, then it backfires on him, too, because Guy is Guy. Right, and the nephew dies after one year. Right, but uh, before... Oh, he, yeah, and Guy is terrible. <laughs> yeah, Guy is terrible. He doesn't. He has, like, no leadership experience. Yeah, he's, he's a knight. He's a Frankish knight. Right. And he has no real lands, so he has to gift him all these lands. He's a complete jerk to Baldwin, like, and is always, like, denying, you know, like, requests and things like that. I mean, he's just a jerk. Right. Throughout the inter- what he had was a, a rich family with incredible connections because yeah. the, the Lusignans come yes. from an area of France that would eventually, they, they they would actually owe fealty to Richard the Lionheart yeah. for the lands they owned in France. Yep. And so the Lusignans and the Ebelins became rivals and like every time it seemed like the Lusignans were going to get out, you know, this is after the events of the movie, but Richard the Lionheart shows up. He's yeah. like, no, the hey, Lusign- bud. Yeah, they're staying. It's yeah. like, darn it, we just got rid of them. So that's, that's kind of how he gets into the mix is his family has these vast connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, not necessarily in the Crusader states, but... So that, that's a very broad, uh, you know, summary of the very intricate works of the kingdom of Jerusalem at this time. And I know we, we skip so much, and there's so many battles and political maneuvering that would take for forever. But the one thing that Baldwin IV really hung his hat on, and there were multiple of these battles on a much, much smaller scale, is the Battle of Montegard. And... In the movie, he talks about it one time to Orlando Bloom's character how he won a great victory over Saladin when he was 16 years old. And that's true. So yes. we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the battle. And there's a couple little things we'll wrap up with, just some little things that we wanted to talk about. But the last real thing that is leading up to the events of the movie is the Battle of Montegard in November of 1177. Do you want, you want to hit on that? You want me to... Yeah, so, you know... Kind of a one of those what what became a typical crusader situation. A large Muslim army is coming in. They've got a, they know they have a manpower yeah. problem. Yeah, so somewhere between like twenty to thirty thousand, right. you know, uh, men are coming into Jerusalem. And there's a crusader army that went up north to fight in Edessa, right? There, I believe so. They're... So the, the main crusader army's gone. So you've got Baldwin the fourth. And Renaud de Chatillon, or uh, um, yeah, Renaud of Chatillon, yeah, Chatillon, yeah. and <laughs> like there's a character we'll get into later. Well, yeah, we'll talk about himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he deserves his own podcast. Right. Um, they, they scrounge together what they can. Yeah, it's like three to four thousand 
soldiers. Right, and in and in that group, there, there's something like 400 knights. Yeah, and who well, certainly do the lion's share of fighting. And there's 80 templars, which is a big is a big deal. Yes, and so Saladin, who we'll talk about more in a little bit, he he comes in. He knows the Crusaders, well, he thinks the Crusaders he can't thinks, resist yeah. them. He's got this large army. The king is a leper boy who's 16 years old. Right. So he sort of spreads his army out over a large area. It's like, all right, we'll forage. That way we don't mm-hmm. run out of food, water. Light, the baggage train will come slow behind. We're light cavalry. We can, we'll can. we be mobile. We'll be everywhere. Right. And so it wasn't really all brought together. And, and as there's some confusion about the creek or the river, but at some point when his baggage train is crossing a, a, a creek that they mm-hmm. think may have swollen with, lo- with recent rains... Um, the Christian army led by Baldwin and Reynolds, they show up and they essentially catch them as they're trying to cross this, yeah. this water. And they just crush this huge, this army way, way bigger than them. Uh, Saladin supposedly only survived because he, he got on a racing camel that he right. had in his baggage train and ran back like 20 miles back to the nearest fortress that he controlled. They say nine out of ten of his men never made it back. Yeah. I mean, they were like, just hunted across the countryside and, and pretty much wiped well, out. Well, I mean, like, Saladin's army is like, depending on the numbers, six and seven times larger right. than the Crusader army. And Baldwin's a leper king, and he's in the middle of the right. fight. Yeah, he, led char- the charge. he led the charge. Yeah, 16 I mean, years old. He's bandaged so his, like, the blood, his sores <laughs> don't burst when he's like in the battle and everything yeah. like that. I mean, it's great. And like, Renault is like, his relationship with Baldwin, when you watch the movie, is... Is just bad. It's a bad relationship. Right. It's much more com- complex he, he's than almost the primary antagonist. Yes, him and Guy are. Yeah. That's how they're painted as. Yes, and and w- just like with everything in real life, it's much more complicated than that because they are, like Renald is, not trying to kill Baldwin here. They are working together to right. preserve the kingdom. Yes, and he is really kind of seen as the strategic mind behind it, like advising Baldwin on what to do. But Baldwin is leading the charge. I mean, I'm, I guarantee you Ronaldo's in the battle as well. That's one of the things he loves. Right. But, I mean, it, it when you view this battle and a lot of Baldwin's battles, you really see how good of a commander and inspiration Baldwin really does for the Crusader forces. Because, you know, Saladin is an amazing commander. Yes. But it's almost like Baldwin's like the guy he can't figure out. Because time and time again, this leper boy... Like matches him, or beats him. Right. And, they they meet on the battlefield about three or four more times after this battle, and yeah. one of them was a was a good sized battle that Saladin got the better of, and Baldwin right. actually had to himself flee on a fast horse to escape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the rest of them are like draws or Baldwin wins. I mean, it's in an era where where the Muslims are kind of on on the up. Yeah. Now Saladin, they're, they're right, on the up. Right. They're getting stronger and stronger. For some reason, this young leper boy is hold, holds them back every time, right. or and and or makes a legit truce with them. I mean, yes. he's able to negotiate with them. He's able yeah. to beat them on the battlefield. Right. And so, so, yeah, he's a truly incredible like figure in the Crusades right. so who the, died too this, early. This battle itself is what really happens to lead, lend to the events of the movie. Because when you when we enter the movie, we're at a time of peace. And this battle is what really allows Baldwin to sign a extended peace treaty with Saladin, Saladin to like I mean, just basically have peace in the land. Right. Now, it's not necessarily followed on either side, but as far as major armies, it's pretty much followed. There's raids by Saladin, there's raids by Renault, there's raids by Guy. There's, you know, there's all those sorts of things, because they all don't like each other, and do they're doing things re- regardless. But we're, when the movie starts, we're kind of in this, the end. The end of this peace treaty is what is 
going to begin the major, and all this time Saladin is is making another force to win. When this peace treaty ends, I'm coming in. Right. And it is it is accepted by both sides that this peace treaty is not going to be renewed. Right. They are they both know they are going to war when this this happens, and Saladin's actually help, hoping that Baldwin will be dead right. by by the out, time this out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you want me to talk about Salah? Yeah, I was just saying. So that kind of wraps up, like the timeline of what of leading up to the movie. The, the next podcast will be the Kingdom of Heaven podcast, and we'll talk a little bit more about some backstory stuff. But then we'll cover all the events in the movie and the siege of Jerusalem, and a little a little bit afterwards, and 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 all that kind of thing. But there's a couple things that we just want to talk about, just from the First Crusade time period. Um, just to clean up some things, and then just another cool little tidbit that we wanted to talk about. So, what uh, you want to talk about, Saladin, a little bit? Right. So you hear his name a lot. He's just Salahuddin. Like you, yeah, just like you hear Richard the Lionheart, you always hear Saladin, and and they would you know, after the events of the movie, they'd go on to be pitted as the great rivals. Right. We've been talking about him and Baldwin's rivalry, but him and Richard would go on. Right. And he would actually even achieve a bit of, not a bit. He would achieve respect from the Christian world. I mean, I believe there's instances of Christian people naming, naming their kids the, yes. Saladin. Yep. He, he's seen as this like, almost like respectable, righteous it's, it's rival like, of theirs. It's like the noble savage almost. It's, yeah, it's like that concept. Right? Right, yeah, it, I, I don't mean they view him as a savage, but like right, right. you that that, that kind of like he's my enemy, but he's fought so hard and yeah. he's done so many good things that we respect him now, even though he's a Muslim. Right. You know? and so so his Saladin is is actually the Christianized version. Of a title that he had that meant the righteousness of, of religious, uh, I guess, of religion. But it, he had a title that was Salah Adin, and then we the Christians just turned that into Saladin. Right, it's not even his name. No, his it, real name is, is Yusuf. Right. So he, he's uh, he's actually of Armenian descent. Or excuse me, he's actually of Kurdish descent. Um, he's, he's often... Re, re, uh, he's a Kurdish hero right, in He's Iraq. referred to as the, the greatest, or the most famous Kurd of all time. Yeah. So his family came from an area that is now in Armenia, and they, they moved out. His, his father had become the governor of a city, probably somewhere in what's now northern Iraq, near mm-hmm. Tikrit. And what kind of kicked him into the his family towards the Crusades was, like we mentioned, there was these Seljuk warlords that owned certain areas. Well, one of them who ruled over an area in Syria, he, he had tried to make a play on the Abbasid Caliph in mm-hmm. Baghdad, He's, his army's retreating after it gets beaten, and it gets to the to the uh, Euphrates River, and it can't cross. Saladin's dad helped him cross that river. Gotcha. And then a year, and which angered the the local Seljuk commander. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, Saladin's uncle murdered that same commander's best friend, <laughs> and so th- that family is forced to to flee. And they're given roles as commanders in this sort of Turkish Seljuk guy named uh, Nerd Adin in Syria. They they join his army. Now he's he's important because. He took out the county of Edessa, the first Crusader state. Yeah, it's, a, it's the first one to it's fall. It's the first one to fall, which right. which launched the often forgotten Second Crusade, which yeah. was to recapture the county of Edessa. Failed miserably. Yeah, yeah, that's another moment we're talking about where a German army came and just failed. And it, I mean, we don't even hardly talk about the Second no. Crusade. Uh, it it was ill-prepared, ill-led, and everything they did was a massive failure, and tons of Germans, and then uh, there's another Frankish army, basically... They're not wiped out, but they are destroyed handily. Right. It kind of falls apart before it gets there. And by the time they get there, it's so unrealistic to take back the county of Dissa. They're like, you know what? Let's try to just try to take Damascus. Right. It's not even why we're, and they fail at they that They fail too. at that too. So that's like in the 1140s. So right. that's in the also kind of the run-up in the events of the movie. Yeah. It's funny because he's like, First Crusade, take Jerusalem. Third Crusade, where's the Lionheart? Oh, wait. Well, 
it was first and third, there has to be a second. It's like, well, we don't we don't talk about that one. Right. right. <laughs> and so this oh and, and I apologize, Zingi is the is the commander that rules Syria that, that brought them back. Okay. And then I believe his Nuradin came after him. But um so what began Saladin's rise to power? Him and his uncle that we mentioned, the the one mm-hmm. that murdered the, the guy's friend. The commander. Um the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt, which is sort of falling apart right. now because he, it's been beaten so many times by the Crusades and it's just well. They're, past j- its they're time. a joke. They're kind right. of a joke. So he's he wants this guy, Nur ad-Din, he wants to unite the Syrian and Egyptian Muslim camps. They send Saladin and his uncle to Egypt to advise the young Shia Fatimid Caliph. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of politics that go on, yeah. but eventually <laughs> the uncle dies. Saladin becomes the guy the this young caliph's main advisor. And when that caliph dies, Saladin rises up, seizes Egypt, and declares an end to the Fatimid Caliphate. Yeah. Brings Egypt back into the Sunni world and starts the Ayyubid Sultanate of Egypt. Right. And that that's, that's his, his rise. That's his first real title as a right. commander. Sultan, yeah, he's the Sultan of Egypt is yeah. his title in life. And he, he would go on, he would go up, he'd fight, he'd unite the Syrian camp back with the Egyptian mm-hmm. camp. So his new kingdom now surrounds the Crusader states. Yeah, um, because, because they've taken Edessa on the coast, their empire completely surrounds all of the Crusader states. Right. And so... And he finally unites Syria and Egypt in 1182. The events of the movie we're going to talk about are 1187. Yeah. So so around or, the same time, Baldwin, right? At, like, right. Yeah. yeah. So around the same time he fights Baldwin and loses. It's actually a couple years after that he completes the re like the reunification of the right. Muslim kingdoms. Because he, he's coming out of Egypt. Jerusalem is ripe for the taking because the Crusaders army gone. Right. But his real goal is to unite all yes. of the kingdoms and then take on the Crusaders. Right. But he just thinks it's like. Are going to be a quick strike because right. oh, take advantage of the time. So that's kind of a good backdrop to the movie because in the movie they keep talking about him like he's this mythical person. Why he's so powerful? Well, when the movie starts, he has just unified everyone, and, yeah. and they mention that early in the movie. They say, "Well, the Muslims are all now unified." Yeah, and and they say him by name, and and this is the first time that they've been <coughs> unified since the Crusades. Since started. the no, well, since way before the oh, Crusades yes, started. Yeah, at least in, yeah, in that area for sure. It's the first time they've all been brought together under one ruler. Since like, you know, Muhammad's like the Muhammad's time, right? Like Yeah, oh yeah, the Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates, but since they've like all waned, you know, past their prime. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's broken up and you had the Fatimids come in there. It's the first time that Syria and Egypt have been ruled under one guy. But he, and what's incredible is even though he's seen as the greatest foe arguably of the Crusaders, he he did gain so much respect, and he was he was known to be a, a good, good man. person. And so yeah. when he died, he, he had given almost all of his personal wealth to charity well, when he died. We'll talk a little bit more about that. At, oh, at the, okay. At the... well, but anyways, that that's a little look at how Saladin rose, where he came from, right. what made him this legendary figure that everyone feared. It's because he united all the Muslims. Right. The another little tidbit that I meant to talk about earlier, and then we won't be on this long, is that there was this minor crusade that doesn't get like a number and it happened just in 1101 the king of norway Sigrid, decides yeah. that he's going to go on crusade now he's he's and the important thing about this is he's the first actual king to make a pilgrimage to the holy land the rest of them are princes and lords and, and things like that and he brings a bunch of vikings from norway they say they don't go down the danube or anything like that they sail all the way through around the Medi- in th- through the mediterranean Come to Jerusalem, they meet with uh, Baldwin, and they become like good buddies. They go out, they siege a castle at Sindon, they take it, and the, these Vikings establish themselves as like great warriors and like 
they helps it really helps solidify you know that time that we were talking about solidifying the kingdom mm-hmm. the the uh, Norwegian forces are reinforcements badly needed reinforcements that the kingdom of Jerusalem needed that really go out and do some small battles and then the Sindon siege is really kind of like their crowning achievement but they're the ones that actually help solidify the kingdom of Jerusalem after the rest of the crusaders go home from uh, from that first battle and then they decide to go home so they don't say so you don't see a lot of like Norwegian crusaders staying and establishing and things like that they go to, they stop at Constantinople and a bunch of these Norse you know, they're more or less still, they're basically Vikings, right. uh, decide to stay, and they reinforce the Varangian guard numbers that have been dwindling <laughs> dwindling for so long. Uh, and then they stay there, and then Sigurd and his men go back to uh, Norway. I mean, like, it's a very small little, but just kind of a cool snippet of Crusader history that actually had a lasting impact on the Kingdom of Jerusalem as far as establishing their geographic boundaries and, and things like that. Um you have anything else that you want to add or talk about? I don't think so. I think that that kind of leads up to the events of the movie pretty well. That's 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 what you have. Baldwin ruling Jerusalem. Yeah. Saladin has just united the Muslim world. The peace tree is about to run out. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, and so that's yeah, that's sort of the backdrop. That's yeah, what the movie character Bailey, and that's what he comes upon. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The orphan blacksmith of France. Yeah. Right. That's what he, he comes stumbles into the upon. World of, into, yeah. yeah. Of, of the fear that Saladin is going to is going to come. Yeah. Yeah. So that is going to wrap us up for the uh, Kingdom of Heaven mini. We'll call it the First Crusade mini. Um, we appreciate everyone listening. I know it's been a while since we've had an episode come out, but you know, Christmas holidays and we've been traveling and everything like that. So. Um, we're going to get, try and get the episodes back up and running in the new year and be a little bit more regular with the uh, content coming out. So be on the lookout for the actual Based on History Kingdom of Heaven episode, and then we're also going to do a Weapons, Armor, and Tactics episode over the Crusaders and the Muslim forces and things like that. So we'll see you next time. Adios.